Well, good morning. Welcome to Adult Sunday School. If you are visiting with us today or you've uh, only recently started attending Sunday School or Christ Covenant Church, my name is Kyle Lockhart. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Covenant Church. Um, As many of you know, and some of you may not, our senior minister uh, has taken another call. And so I have not been in Sunday school yet this semester, having been preaching uh, all of the weeks leading up to this one. But the intention, uh, the session's intention, is as we welcome some men into the pulpit who have been a part of our church for some time in the history of Christ Covenant Church, uh, I'll continue my responsibilities here teaching Sunday school. And I'm going to feel really bad that you guys are over my shoulder the whole time. But if you don't feel bad, I won't feel bad. Okay. Okay. This is my better side. You guys have the better angle. Um, Dr. Belcher is in the pulpit this morning, uh, <clears throat> and so he's been a friend of Christ Covenant Church for a decade or more, uh, and we're going to continue working our way through Romans. I think the next time I'm back in here is in November, uh, the first part of chapter 5, uh, and so the elders will continue to teach through Romans, and I'll be back in here in a few weeks, November 12th, to teach through uh, the first part of Romans 5 as it relates to our having peace with God this morning. We're looking at the second part of Romans chapter 2. Uh, Eric Bolton, one of our elders, our clerk of session, taught through the first 11 verses last week. Uh, and we'll look at verses 12 through 29. I think I put 12 through 28 in your handout. I'll correct that in the Dropbox folder. Judgment for all. Um, and we'll, we'll explain this as we go through our time in God's Word. Again, if you're new to Sunday school or unfamiliar, we should have handouts over there where Scott's standing on the music stand. Historically, we've used our Sunday school hour to teach through history and theology and so forth. We've done lengthy series on covenant theology and on various doctrines and practices that we hold to here at Christ Covenant Church. And it's been a long, long time since we've gone through a book of the Bible like this. But this is a little bit more informal, obviously, than preaching in in a worship service. It allows for more interaction. It gives you access to more voices. For example, the elders who will be teaching throughout the semester. Uh, And just to be totally transparent, on a number of occasions, I've been uh, confronted as too strong of a word. I've I've had interactions with some of the ladies in the church who lament the fact that the men seem to be the only one who have access to Bible teaching in an informal setting from the pastors. So uh, aside from the men uh, coming to Friday morning and everyone attending worship on Sunday morning, uh, most of the women in the church don't have access to the elders and ministers in a formal way like this going through exegetically through the Bible. And so we wanted to provide this opportunity for everyone Uh, to be able to go through a book of the Bible like this in a unique way that isn't part of our normal habit. However, here we are, uh, Romans chapter 2. Let me pray. I think that's enough introductory remarks. As you guys know, we've got tons of time, and so I will abuse that as much as I'm able to this morning, uh, getting through Romans 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fall morning for the reminder that you have continued to cause the earth to rotate and to tilt toward and from the sun. 
You place the sun and the moon and the stars in their exact place in the heavens and you give us light and life. The changing seasons and the cool air is a reminder, God, that you have not once failed to take care of all of your creation. You have not once failed to take care of any one of us. And so we trust that as we read your word this morning, your spirit will care for our understanding of it, that he will help us to apprehend the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts that we might do all the things that are commended to us in your word, that we might believe what we are to know concerning you, your righteousness and your judgment and your law. Cause us, Lord, to look to Christ this morning, we pray that we might be reminded that it's by his righteousness that we live, and not our own. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent, excellent. I will be sure to forward those to nancy.wells at gmail.com as soon as I receive them. I don't know what your email is. I hope that wasn't it. I just... (laughs) Uh, Okay, folks, if you're just joining us, there's some handouts on the music stand back there. If there were not enough, I'll be happy to print some more and bring them next week. But as always, these will be available through the website uh, by middle of the day tomorrow. We're looking at the second part of Romans chapter 2, Judgment for All. Uh, We've entitled our series through Romans, The Power of God, and the verse that we're using for today's text is the first verse of our text, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Well, let me use that as a jumping off into reading our text. I won't reread verses 1 through 11, please do that on your own, but I will read verse 11 uh, as it's directly related to what we're going to be looking at now. I'm going to scoot my way over here and turn the microphone down a little bit while I'm reading. Uh, Romans 2 verse 11, God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, as a little bit of background, and uh, I want to give us a background of what we're doing today, and then take a quick... uh, excursus to talk about some of our confessional uh, statements in our Westminster standards that relate to what we're going to be talking about in Romans chapter 2 today. If you recall from Romans chapter 1 at the top of your handout, the thesis statement for the book of Romans is given in verses 16 and 17. The righteousness of God is for Jew and Gentile. The scripture says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, then he goes on in chapter one to describe the Gentile sinfulness. So we have this righteousness of God expressed for all people. And then he says, but the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men who exchange the truth for a lie. Specifically here, verse 32 Speaking of the Gentiles, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is probably well understood to be the uh, theme verse of the 21st century. Uh, They know, the world knows, it's indelibly written in their hearts that this is not the way things are supposed to be. In particular, Paul has been dealing with sexual immorality and perversion in chapter 1. God has given the world up to its depraved desires because it refused to acknowledge him as God, though they know. That's really key, and I'm sure this was gone over in chapter 1 with the elders that taught through it, though they know. Uh, In other words, mankind is without excuse. What can be known about God is evident to them. It has been plainly evident since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternality, his divine power. Those things are known. Everyone knows. Uh, The old statement, and you guys have heard it said here before, uh, atheists don't believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. Everybody knows, and they're without excuse. And so after Paul uh, gives this, gives expression to the reality that all people are without excuse. All people know God's righteousness. He then begins to turn his attention to the Jews. He says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 2, you have no excuse, O man. Now, I've highlighted that in your handout, O man, uh, for a reason, obviously. It was a common Jewish phrase Uh, that we see in extra-biblical writings to describe Jewish people. So when a Jewish leader would be speaking to Jewish people in the synagogue or in a teaching environment, he would refer to them using this terminology, oh man. Almost like how you know how pastors say uh, brothers and sisters. 
when talking to the Christians, talking to the Christian community, preaching, brothers and sisters, beloved, or something like that. Some ministers have phrases like that that they'll use regularly to describe the church. Uh, oh man was a phrase commonly used to describe the Jewish people in, in this context, in a teaching context. And so when Paul says this, it's obvious that he's turning his attention to the Jewish people who were all amening what he just said in chapter one. Yeah, God has given them up and they are bad. All those wicked Gentiles, look how bad they are. They, they know about God and they deny him functionally by the way that they live. And we're with you, Paul. And then he says, really? You therefore, O man, you have no excuse because you judge other people. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. Now he's going to come back and he unpacks that at great length in our text today, which we'll get to here in a moment. Now the transition really comes in verses 9 uh, through 11 of chapter 2. Uh, uh, I really could put just um, 10 and 11, but I included 9 because he mentions the Jew and the Greek. And so here's that all people are together under the judgment of God. All people together stand in sin before God's judgment seat. Paul is putting all of mankind in the same totally depraved bucket. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 and following, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew and the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew and the Greek. There's that uh, righteousness for everybody emphasis again. And then verse 11 is that transition, God shows no partiality. So if you're a Jewish person uh, in Paul's day in Rome who has been sort of leaning on the reality of the law and the revelation of God in the Old Testament writings and the fact that you have circumcision, when you come to verse 11, it would be like a punch right between the eyes. Like this is really hard hitting when he says in verse 11, there's no partiality. God's going to judge everybody the same. You go, that's not possible. We have the law and we have the circumcision. We have the relationship. He's not going to judge us the same. And that's what Paul's about to unpack for us, that judgment is for all people because all people have sinned. And he's going to, again, obviously in the following chapters, say this over and over again, right? So you kind of picture these Jewish readers of Romans responding internally the way the Pharisees would have responded in a number of Jesus' parables. Remember, there's parables about the vineyard and which was let out to the tenants to keep it, and the owner sends servant after servant to go collect, and they keep killing them and beating them and throwing them away. And he says, well, I'm going to send my son. And then when they see the son, they beat him up and they kill him, and then the owner says, well, I'm going I'm to destroy those wicked tenants. And it tells us in Scripture that they realized that he was talking about them. This is, would have been a similar reaction reading verse 11. And it ought to be a similar reaction for us. Uh, this whole notion of uh, hypocritical antinomianism uh, and legalism are no less relevant today than they were back then, and maybe even more so. We've cleaned out all the Jewish part of our understanding of the law, and we've just turned it into a fully New Testament understanding of what it means to be under the law. And we can be just as legalistic and hypocritical in our regular practice as anybody back then was. And so as we go through this, I want us to think now for just a couple of minutes uh, in relation to our confession, um, what Paul is saying and how it'll be relevant to these following verses. So here we have uh, the confession of faith, uh, chapter 6 which is on the fall of man, sin, and the punishment thereof. 
So I've emphasized a few things in here. You can find this online pretty easily. I, I won't print this all off, but I'll put the slideshow on Dropbox. Chapter 6 of our confession tells us that our first parents were seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan and sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. We won't camp here, uh, but just be reminded that God does indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even the bad things that we do and experience. Paragraph 2, by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin, Ephesians 2, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Wholly defiled, wholly defiled. This is what I say in point 3 on page 1 there. Paul is putting all of mankind into the same totally depraved bucket. We are totally defiled, wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of our soul and of our body. <clears throat> There's a footnote here or a note here uh, later on down the page on page one that I'll just mention now. Gerhardus Voss uh, in his Reformed Dogmatics in speaking of total depravity talks about the fact that we are so depraved that there is no thing that we do that gives glory to God. Everything that we do in our natural state is absent any concern for God's glory from a sincere heart. And so the the reality behind that, just think about that for a second with me, is that when the world's leading mathematician with the highest IQ of all of the mathematicians that have ever lived says 2 plus 2 equals 4, that is a sin because he is stealing that truth and failing to give glory to God for it. Total depravity, that means that when, eat, when people who don't love and honor God, do what is right, and we're going to come back to this, when they do the law, those who don't have it by nature do it, that doesn't glorify God, and that doesn't give them any standing with God. In fact, it condemns them. So when Albert Einstein stands before the Lord and says, theory of relativity, I knew that, and God will say, the fact that you knew that condemns you, because that's my truth, and you did it for your own purposes, against me. Every part of us is at enmity with God in our natural state. And that sounds extreme because most of us prior to Christ or even today don't walk around thinking, okay, should I do this for me or should I do this for God? Or when we're just sort of innocuously driving down the road and we come to a stop at a stop sign, we don't think, okay, glorify God, praise the Lord, I stopped. We don't think that way. But for the unbeliever, when you obey the stop sign and you fail in your heart to acknowledge that that law is based on God's holiness and character, you are in sin because of it. It condemns you. We are wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of our soul and body. Uh, it goes on to say, they being the root of all mankind, Adam and Eve that is, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, uh, descending from them by ordinary generations. So that ordinary generations clause obviously excludes who from the all their posterity received sin? Jesus, right, because he wasn't conceived by ordinary generations. Right? So he is their posterity by superordinary generation, 
which is why he is set apart from that category of depravity. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil, do precede all actual transgressions. So we do sin because we're sinners. It's not the other way around. Now, we're sinners because we do sin, but originally we do sin, actual transgressions, because we are indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil. We see that in Genesis as well as in other parts of Scripture. This is the reality of sin. And Paul is obviously not writing the Westminster Confession of Faith, although you will be shocked to see how much Romans is proof texted in this chapter in chapter 6 of the Confession. When, when Paul is saying God shows no partiality and you therefore, O oh man, you go around judging people, don't you realize what you're doing? He's reminding them of these realities, that we are all in need of something outside of ourselves. Let's skip this. Uh, read the rest of chapter 6 if you're able to on your own. Here we go. Chapter 19 is on the law of God. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity, that includes us, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Now, if it was just to personal, mostly, and pretty darn close, and from time to time obedience, most of us, would, we could feel pretty decent about ourselves on our best days. But this says to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Now, I'm not going to rehash everything we talked about in the covenant of works last semester, but you know that this covenant of works by which all mankind has been bound to God requires total obedience. Paul says, if you violate one aspect of the law, you're guilty of how much of it? All of it. James says the same thing. Here he'll say circumcision counts for how much if you break the law? Nothing. doesn't matter if you do everything but one thing. That's everything. And the reason that that's true, well, the reason that that bothers us is because we have small thoughts about God. But the reason that that's true is because God is really, really big and really holy and really deserves actual, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. And because none of us can do that, we need somebody else. We're coming back to this. This law, after the fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. It continued to be, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. Well, that means that the law concerning God's design for mankind predates the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, doesn't it? It has to, in order for us to be able to confess this and Paul to be able to say the same thing elsewhere in Romans. The law was obvious. It was written on the hearts of mankind, which is what he's saying here in chapter 2, prior to the giving of the law. And so the giving of the law is simply the codification of God's intention for his people. That law, which is to be perfectly followed entirely, exactly, and perpetually. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. Not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. This is where everyone finds themselves. Let's move quickly through these last couple slides. Now, 
to connect with the fact that God made mankind and they fell into sin, which is how uh, we find ourselves here in Romans chapter 2. And God gave a law which matters to all mankind throughout all ages, which Paul is dealing with here in Romans chapter 2. And ultimately, the fact that Christ Jesus will judge all mankind impartiality. Let's look at chapter 19, or excuse me, 33 of the confession concerning the last judgment. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. You see Romans chapter 2 right here. To whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. In which day, not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons. All persons. God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without it, and all who have sinned under it will be judged by it. All persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. Every time I read that, every single time I read that, I think to myself two things. Number one, I hope there's like a private room that I can go into with God for this part of the judgment. And number two, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ. Our apprehension of this reality, all persons will give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. Wow. There's going to come a day when everyone stands before the Lord and he looks at us. I'll use myself. I'm not going to point at anybody for an illustration here. And he'll say, here you go. Here we go. Stand by. And every thought, that's the worst part. Every word, every deed, not only done in gross transgression of the law, but in failure to live up to it, right? What does our shorter catechism say? Sin is any want of conformity unto and transgression of the law of God. It's not just missing the mark. It's not just high-handed sins. It's also hidden faults that I don't even know about. Failure to give glory to God when I stop at that stop sign. All those things. And all those things are going to be judged, and it's going to be so painfully, terribly, fearfully, like Isaiah chapter 6, obvious to me that I am undone and deserve nothing. In that moment, each one of us will agree with God's judgment that we deserve eternity in hell. And then Christ steps in. Isn't that incredible? God will judge impartially. And all the things that we've done deserve God's judgment. And all of the work that Christ has done has propitiated his judgment. And turned it off of us and onto him. And justification is an act of God's free grace whereby we are made righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And received by faith alone. That's good news. All persons will be judged. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy. 
Everyone standing there deserving judgment, receiving mercy, will magnify God's glory in that moment in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Isn't that fascinating that God will receive equal amounts of glory from those in heaven as he will from those in hell for all eternity? Not that those in hell will be worshiping, but that their presence there is evidence of his eternal justice for which he deserves to be worshiped. This is hard to wrap your minds around, I admit. That idea that the existence of a perpetual place of torment for the unbelievers is somehow designed to bring glory to God is hard to fathom. I recognize that. But God will certainly receive glory from both the salvation of the elect and the damnation of the reprobate because their presence outside the gate forever spotlighting God's holiness and justice will be the thing that forever magnifies his mercy and kindness towards us who don't deserve it. And so if, if we get to heaven and God just kind of wipes our minds of all the people who aren't there, first of all, the conversation is going to be weird. I'm be like, hey, Jake, how's it going? You know, is your family here? And you'll be like, family? Hmm, that's strange. I don't have parents. You know, I'm not saying that your parents aren't Christian. But to, to the person who has unbelieving family, what do you do with that? I don't know how I got here. And if hell is not forever in view and God's glory and damnation is not forever on display, then what will we be worshiping him for in heaven? Just being there? Not for being saved, because there's nothing to be saved from if we have no awareness of hell. And the songs in Revelation seem to suggest that the perpetual worship of the Lamb revolves around him having saved people from out the midst of the wicked world. We're getting off topic. Okay, we'll leave that alone. So here we go. Let's continue to look at our, uh, our text uh, for this last half hour. Uh, first, we see the Gentiles in God's law uh, outlined for us in verses 12 through 16. Now, oftentimes, verses 12 through 16 are used uh, as part of verses 1 through 11. Uh, I understand why we, we made the break here last week. But typically, 12 through 16 are really a follow-on to what Paul was saying in verses 1 through 11. Uh, He ends verse 11 with that transitional, for God shows no partiality. And now he begins to give weight to the reality that God is impartial. And he says, impartiality is so serious and so comprehensive that God is going to judge not only all those Gentiles outside of the law, but all of you Jews who are under the law. And you think that you're safe because you're under it, but you're in the same position that they're in without it. And I'm going to tell you why. And this is what Paul is, is saying here in this uh, text. Judgment, in other words, is not based on falling within the sphere or outside the sphere of Torah, but on sin. And that becomes a problem for everybody then, doesn't it? If it were simply a matter of ethnicity, then people of a certain ethnicity could rejoice in the fact that judgment doesn't fall on them. If it was a matter of revelation, then people with a certain amount of revelation could celebrate because judgment wouldn't fall on them. But he says it's not a matter of either of those things. It's a matter of sin. It's impartial then. It's for everybody. 
So Paul here is uh, affirming the continuing obligations of the covenant of works. Those who are without the law and those who are under the law are all together uh, those who will be judged by God. It is a perpetual uh, requirement for mankind to live in obedience to God. And he also affirms total depravity in this paragraph. This is what I mentioned earlier. He says, uh, all of us sin, whether under the law or otherwise. Now, as he gets into uh, these verses here, 14 and 15, well, let me stop. Let me go back to verse 13 here because he says something that causes some uh, consternation, I think, uh, in the hearts of some people. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, some people will suggest that, that might, what that might mean, what Paul could be saying here, is that there's the sort of person who can do the law and be justified. Can that be what he's saying? Okay, why not? Because the Bible is true in every point. Yeah, because the Bible says the opposite elsewhere, right? It's not opposite that he's saying that because then he would be right There you go. Scripture cannot contradict itself, and elsewhere he says pretty plainly, in fact, we could just look over at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, are Jews any better off? Uh, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he'll say it again elsewhere in Romans, won't he? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So obviously he's not saying that there's the sort of person out there who can keep the law and thereby be righteous before God. Now, that's not what he's saying. Some have interpreted this to say that the doers of the law will be justified. That's Christians uh, because they're able to do the law. Well, I've been a Christian for quite a while, and I repeatedly break the law. Anybody else? All right. Me and Steve, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, but you understand the point. It can't be that. It can't simply be what he's alluding to here is those who are Christians and who are doers of the law because the Spirit enables them to do it. Well, again, he mentions right in the following verses that there are Gentiles who do the law, Aren't there non-Christian philanthropists who show mercy to orphans and widows and love their wives and raise their children well and keep the traffic laws and don't harm people? Aren't they out there? Aren't there non-Christians who do that? I mean, goodness, there are whole religions out there that on the surface appear far more moral than many Christians do. So it can't be that. It can't be just that because we're Christians, we do the law and we're justified by that because that would add our works, even post-salvation works, to our justification. By the way, this is a, a fairly popular uh, idea in schools of thought, what we call the new perspective on Paul and federal vision. They teach this, that there are works that we do by the Spirit that cause us to be finally justified. They talk about final justification. If you read the phrase final justification in any sort of theology in a way that's not criticizing that concept, you're reading the wrong stuff. I'm just very plainly. I'm, I'm, I, take, I have no hesitation saying that. Uh, federal vision and new perspective on Paul are dangerous teaching that put the onus of your ultimate salvation on your covenant keeping that's why they talk about final justification. Okay, other topic. 
So Paul is not saying that these uh, Gentiles are able to do what the law requires and therefore become justified. Uh, in fact, he, he says that we're not able to do that all over this text. He isn't saying that people who do not have the law actually keep the law in a saving way. He's saying that we do things that are required by the law sometimes, and that only makes it clear that we deserve judgment. Look at what he says in verse 16, or verse 15. <clears throat> they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts because they sometimes do it, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The, the emphasis there being on accuse, not excuse. The excuse is sort of, oh, and maybe sometimes. The emphasis here is on accuse. And so what he's saying is that People who do the law simply because of the imago Dei, because God's uh, image is etched into the heart of every person, onto the soul of every man and woman, and we sometimes do the right thing, that in itself ought to cause our conscience to go, well, why are you doing the wrong thing? And what makes this right? And why do you feel okay about this and bad about that? And those thoughts which accuse and excuse us are going to be the basis for our judgment when God, through the gospel, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, verse 16. No, one's, no one has an excuse. And so don't make the mistake of reading verses 12 through 16 and thinking that there is, uh, in Paul's teaching, some idea that we can keep the law and thereby be made righteous or declared righteous or justified. Uh, rather, Paul is alluding to the fact that there is a natural law, that it's written on the hearts of people. And this is what justifies God sending those who have never heard the gospel to hell. The question is sometimes asked, if there were in some village in a jungle somewhere, a man or a woman who had never done anything wrong, they had never sinned, never been unkind to their neighbor. They were very generous with what little bit they had. They cared for the widows and orphans in their community. Uh, they never stole or committed adultery. They always honored their parents. They didn't worship the sun or the trees or the water. They didn't have little carved images in their hut. In some, they never sinned. Never, not once. If that person died and stood before the judgment seat of God, would that person be welcomed into heaven? And the answer is yes. But he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. He's nowhere to be found. For all have sinned. And it's not just a matter of not breaking the law in its external uh, rituals and ceremonies and expectations. It's also a matter of the heart, and that's the problem. There are plenty of people who are able to control themselves from doing outwardly violent and sinful things. Plenty of non-Christians go from infancy through old age without ever committing adultery and that doesn't win them any status with God because their hearts are not oriented towards God. Yeah, Jake. I think one of the reasons why we can say that our hearts are not oriented with God is because outside of Christ, we have a union with another representative, and that's Adam. 
That's right. Yeah, so it's a matter it's a matter of whose family you belong to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So this again, if you look at point F here uh, on page one, rather than teaching works righteousness, Paul reminds us that we need Christ's righteousness to be justified, for no one is able to keep the law. He says this in Galatians, he says it back in Romans chapter one. And so being in Christ is the central thrust of what it means to be saved. Um <clears throat> Is anyone listening to the uh, Sinclair Ferguson podcast this year? Things unseen? Anybody? Only the only the holiest among us. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give it a listen. Uh, they're five, seven minutes long. It's Monday through Friday, so it's five days a week. I don't know what week we are in the year right now. We're probably at like week thirty-eight or something like that in the calendar or something like that. Is that right? Thirty-seven, thirty-eight. So uh, whatever that is, you've got a handful of 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 them to listen to. You could, if you have a long drive, if anybody has to drive to Charlotte and back, you could probably catch up uh, on the year. They're worth your five minutes every morning. They're fantastic. Why did I say this? He. Um, Oh, uh, last week, last week he was talking about the grammar of the gospel. <clears throat> and in the, the conversation about the grammar of the gospel, he talks about indicatives and imperatives and present and future and so forth. And he talks about prepositions. Ooh. He talks about prepositions. And, and you've heard that Luther has said that the gospel is a gospel of prepositions. Uh, what it means to be in and with and for and by, those small little words that carry all the freight of the gospel. And Ferguson emphasized the in Christness of what it means to be saved. Uh, and he, I wish I'd listened to this before I preached First Peter chapter 2. Uh, he mentions that in Christ is the principal language used to describe the Christian in the Bible. Saved is not, is rarely used. Uh, born again is used in parallel to in Christ. They're the same thing. But the idea of a born again Christian is sort of, saying the same thing twice, isn't it? Um, and so this notion of being in Christ, like Jake was just alluding to, is so important uh, for us in thinking about this notion of justification um, here in, in chapter 2. Well, let me ask a question. Go to the top of page 2 in your handout, I believe. Is the top of page 2 in your handout? Where's the comma go? Where's the comma go? So, you know, the original languages didn't have all this punctuation, and there's arguments over the commas all over the Bible. I'll, I'll share one uh, popular or common one. is in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Well, that's how my ESV reads. Uh, others would say, and teachers to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. So what's the difference between those two? In the second one, it's the shepherds and teachers who do the work of the ministry. You hear the difference? Shepherds and teachers have been given for what? To equip the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the fullness of the knowledge and so forth. And so that comma, which is in some translations and not in others, shifts the burden of work. Now, we here at Christ Covenant Church are an every-member ministry church. That doesn't mean everybody is a minister in the sense that they are ordained, called to an office in the church, but everyone does the work of the ministry. 
sharing the gospel, caring for one another, living like Christians in, uh, in context of a corporate body of Christ. And so the way that this reads, it's the way that we do it here. The shepherds and teachers have been given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up of the body of Christ. You see the difference there? So here in Romans chapter 2, this is <clears throat> maybe a small question, but worth asking because your Bibles might look different uh, than the Bible of the person sitting next to you. Verse 14, excuse me. <clears throat> For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, comma, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. That's the way my ESV reads. Anybody else's ESV read that way? Anybody's Bible read differently than that? What are you, what are you reading? How does NASB read it? Okay. All right. So not too much different, actually, when it all comes out in the wash. Here, here would be another way of reading this. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, comma, do what the law requires. Ah. Now, what that's saying is that Gentiles by nature, by ethnic distinction from the Jews, don't have the law. When they do what it requires, they are a law unto themselves. What the ESV translators here are saying is that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, so now the emphasis is on Imago Dei, uh, the Imago Dei in them enables them to do some things that are in keeping with the law, they become a law unto themselves. Now, I'm not going to get into, into the weeds of which is better than the other. Uh, frankly, I prefer this, the ESV's translation, although there are good arguments. Karen Jobes does a really good job of unpacking this for any of you... Uh, that are interested in that level of, of investigation uh, of the distinction between the two. Uh, but ultimately what's being said, irrespective of whether or not this is an ethnic distinction or not, is that when people who don't have the law do what the law says, they demonstrate their own need for God's judgment. They become a law unto themselves. Okay, verse 16. On that day that day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Verse 12, well, verse 11 says, God shows no partiality. Verse 12 says, everyone will be judged because of sin, because everyone is a sinner. Verses 14 and 15 demonstrate to the Jewish listeners that even those who seem to not have a law, you guys aren't special. They've got the same thing written on their hearts and it will stand in judgment over them. And now in verse 16, he sort of wraps it up and there's two things that are worth mentioning. Number one, God's judgment is true. It's just, it's right because it's by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law. And so his understanding of it and its requirements is unique to him. And so his judgment will be impartial because it will be against everyone who has failed to keep the law. But number two, and notice this is really important, when on that day God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, we typically think of the gospel exclusively in positive terms. Jesus saves sinners, right? Fair enough. 
we tend to think of the gospel exclusively in good terms. And we should, because what's it called? Good news. It is good news, right? Uh, Good news is good only insofar as the bad news is bad. Does that make sense, right? Um, When the bad news becomes fully comprehended, the good news is suddenly far greater. Our awareness of how good it really is is amplified in light of how bad it was, right? Uh, This is a big, in missiology, some of you will be aware of this, in missiology, when they talk about colonialism in missiology and how we go to other places and start doing evangelism and ministry principally by trying to build up the socioeconomic status of people in third world countries, the phrase that's used to sort of counter that way of thinking is they don't know how poor they are until we show them. There are people in other parts of the world, and I'm not commending this sort of way of living and saying that it's acceptable or right, but there are people in other parts of the world who have no idea that there's such a thing as lower class Americans because that's so high above their concept of financial stability and, and, and material possession that they can't even fathom it. And they don't know it until we go and show them, right? There's a story about a, a, a place in, in Africa that was opened up. Pure religion is caring for orphans and widows, right? And so they made this orphanage and they employed exclusively the widows of the community in this orphanage in order to care for these children. And they paid them better than anybody else. And they brought them up out of poverty. And they gave them purpose and a mission and children to love and care for. And then they discovered that women around the area were killing their husbands in order to become widows so they could go work at this place and have more money and a better life than their husband could ever provide for them. I don't remember where it was. Yeah, this is um, in um, the perspectives... um, Uh, missions training curriculum. But that's what total depravity means, right? Uh, And so the point is that the gospel is not only good news, but the gospel implies some really bad stuff. It implies that we're in need of the good news, and it implies that sin is so bad that someone else has to come in and take our place and stand in our place on the cross and receive the judgment that we deserve. And it implies that those who reject it will receive the judgment that it is intended to assuage. So let me make another example. We can jump down here at the end. <clears throat> he says in verse 25 and following, circumcision is a value if you obey the law, but if you break it, your circumcision is uncircumcision right? Uh, No one is a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but it's something inward. It's a matter of the heart. Let's talk about covenant signs for a second. We can can jump down here to verses 17 through 29 in the handout. The Jews have all sorts of benefits. They have the law, they have the light, they have the sign of covenant belonging, but it means nothing without a transformed heart, and that's what Paul is saying here. So, Uh, Let's take circumcision, and then we'll make a jump to baptism here. In circumcision, there's, and I apologize for, there's, it's obviously a crass sort of practice and and description, but in circumcision, God is, it's sort of a double entendre. He says to the Israelites that 
a sign of belonging to me is to cut off the foreskin, right? And so the cutting off is emblematic of the fact that you have been separated from the nations around you and made holy to God, that your old nature will be cut off by faith. But then what does he say on the opposite side of that? He says, but if you break my covenant, you will be what from my people? Cut off. He uses the same language. He literally says, so circumcision is about the cutting off of the foreskin, which signifies to the people, it's a sign and a seal that God has separated them from the world around them and has removed the heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh by faith. But it's also a sign, and God says, I will circumcise you off my people if you break the covenant. Now, what do we say here in baptism? That the waters of baptism represent not only the sprinkling waters of God's promise in Ezekiel 36, that I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. That's a promise that is signified and sealed to that child in baptism. It's not only a sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on you. That's a promise that's signified. It's a sign in that baptism. It doesn't happen then, but it's a sign, and it's sealed to that child. But what other major water do we see in Scripture in Genesis? The flood of God's judgment. It also signifies, like circumcision did, that you will be drowned in the judgment of my wrath if you dishonor and, fa- and disobey the promise that's signed and sealed to you this day. And so the gospel is not only a positive, which it is, just like baptism is, but it also implies all the negatives that require it to be true, that require it to be real. Craig? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, can you say it a little louder, Craig? So. So in I, I, this reminds me of Isaiah when it talks about though the flood waters are coming, they will not overwhelm you. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace to His people going through the judgment. You know that came mm. in I believe in the Babylonians' captivity, but. Isaiah was talking about comfort my people in the midst of the judgment that this judgment will not overwhelm you or make you not his people. Yeah, and that's like what baptism signifies. Yeah, the connecting it to what you were talking about with Noah and baptism and the gospel pointing to judgment. Which will not overwhelm us. Somehow that creates a beauty because... It really highlights the the grace of God. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you see here in the notes that it talks about hypocrisy. Remember here, verse 17, uh, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, know his will and approve what is excellent. So you've got it all figured out. You've got your shiny uh, uh, Torah at home and you read from it every day. And if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind and a light to the dark and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children... You've got you you you're resting on your background on your uh, practices. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Because look at what you actually do. He says, 
And so hypocrisy is profession. Look at what I have. I call myself a Jew. I have the law of God. I boast in it. I know what's right. I tell people that I have the law. I tell people how to obey the law. I instruct people who are fools. I teach people who are immature. I have the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, but I don't do what I say. I'm a hypocrite. And that's a problem for all of us, isn't it? Parents, anybody ever feel this way? Seven, 10, 12 times an hour, every day, all day? This is what it's like. We're hypocrites. Hypocrisy is profession without practice. But look at verse 24. This is so fascinating. He says, The result of this is that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So all the people who feel like they're the most religious who fail to do all the things that their religion requires them or tells them that they should do, they find themselves giving God a bad reputation. Then legalism, on the other hand, is ritual without regeneration. And so he says that you could go back through the same section here, verses 17 through 24. You've got all the rituals. You've got all the circumcision here in verse 25 and following, all the things that you're supposed to do in order to be part of the people. But if you don't have regeneration in the heart, because verse 29, it's a matter of the spirit, then it means nothing. So let's fast forward 2,000 years from Paul to today and think about our covenant children, think about our own baptism. We have, we have the rituals, don't we? We have them here. We regulate our worship according to Scripture. We baptize our covenant children. We participate in the Lord's Supper once a month. Not that that's explicit in the Bible. Don't work on Sunday. Don't smoke or chew or drink or grow with girls to do. Right? You guys have heard all those? That's our legalistic practices. We have all the rituals of what it looks like to be a Christian. But without the spirit inside of you, it means nothing. In fact, it's to our detriment. I remember back in Montana, the church I pastored in Montana, I was preaching one time from Luke's gospel, I think it was, where he says, where Jesus says, to whom much is given, much will be required. And I responded to that text by saying, you know, if you're going to come here each Sunday and go home and ignore all this stuff, you're better off staying home. The elders were not pleased about that. (laughs) They're like, yeah, but they're the best givers. No, that's not. But that's the reality, right? To whom much is given, you're hearing this. You're hearing the word preached. You're hearing the gospel. You're hearing about sin and its effects and what it does to your standing before God. And then you hear about the promise of the gospel that Jesus Christ alone saves by grace through faith. That it's only his righteousness, so don't be a legalist. But that he matters as Lord, so obey him. And you hear these things and you're reminded that our being accepted in God's sight is a matter of Christ's act of obedience imputed to us. And we go home every day and we live like hypocrites or we live like legalists. We're just like these Jews who said, we've got Abraham as our father and circumcision as our sign and the law as our guide. And Paul says, you're kidding, right? God's judging you just like all those pagans out there who have none of that stuff and still do as good as you do. From time to time. But isn't that the same thing that the pastor, that you and and Pastor Stewart say when we're doing communion? And they say, if you don't, if if you haven't believed, then don't take 
Yeah, there's something similar there for sure. So when we, we practice what we call fencing the table, which uh, simply means that we believe that the communion table is for believers and for among the believers, those who apprehend its importance, its meaning, we have communicant membership here, and for those who are not uh, holding on to unrepentant sin willfully. And so we encourage people to be reconciled to those that they have broken fellowship with in the body especially, uh, and to spend time contemplating, examining oneself uh, and repenting. So it's the same thing because the table represents God's judgment, doesn't it? Broken body and shed blood. It represents judgment, and it represents God's judgment for you onto Christ. But when you approach it outside of Christ or in willful rebellion to Christ, you're saying, this is for me now because it's no longer his. I'm asking for it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, and this is, that's a really good point. Uh, what was said was for people who are innately good, air quotes, uh, it's harder to realize their need for a savior sometimes, right? And so this is why I unapologetically will continue pushing us towards our confessional standards. I think they're very helpful. Um, when they outline the Ten Commandments, they give us not only the explicit negative or positive connotation of a given commandment, so positively honor your parents, negatively don't murder. They also give us at length the opposing reality. So honor your parents includes negatives. Don't do all these things. Don't murder, which is stated negatively, includes positives like preserve life and do everything to preserve your life and the life of others and so on and so forth. So uh, those are really helpful, I think, for people who feel like I'm hitting all these wickets, like I'm not murdering, I'm not committing adultery, I'm not stealing, but don't realize the implications of those commandments, which are far more heart-oriented than outward-oriented. Uh, and the other thing is just what, uh, what Paul is saying here, our consciences excuse and excuse us. Uh, and going back to Voss's statement earlier that total depravity means that everything we do is antagonistic towards God. Uh, it's not rooted in a desire to glorify him. That alone is enough to make Isaiah say, I'm a man of unclean lips. What are you talking about? You're a priest. Like, how is Isaiah complaining like that? It's because he suddenly becomes aware that even what he says doesn't lift itself up to the level that God requires. Um, yeah. Yeah, giving thanks, that's a... Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. That's true. Let's, let's wrap this up. Uh, conclusion. Number one, the law matters. It does matter. And we can't act like it doesn't. It both shows us the fact that we're sinners. It shows us what God uh, requires of us and how he expects us to live. And it shows us that we need someone else who can keep it. Let me uh, jump out of my notes here and go over to the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 19, 
paragraph 6 on the law of God. Uh, let me read this. <coughs> it's a little lengthy, but it tells us the significance of um, the whole law. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to thereby be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life informing us of the will of God and our duty, it directs and binds us to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of our nature, our hearts, and our lives. So as examining ourselves by the law, we may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need we have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. See what the law does for us? It shows us what God wants, how much we lack, and how much Christ provides. That's what the law does. It shows us what we lack, what God requires, and what Christ provides. The Spirit enables all of this teaching in Romans chapter 2 can't be separated from the rest of Scripture like Craig pointed out earlier. Paul's not saying here something that the Bible says differently or contrarily elsewhere. Ezekiel 36 does tell us that God puts his spirit in us and enables us to keep his law. He says in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Back in Ezekiel chapter 36, you don't have to turn there. If you can get there real quick, go ahead. But the context of God saying, this is really, this is really important. The context of God saying, I will put my spirit in you and enable you to walk in my commandments and keep my rules is verse 23 of Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. What does Romans chapter 2 say? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why? Because you don't do what you're supposed to be doing. So when I drop my kids off at an event, a school thing, or a birthday party, or going over to a friend's house, uh, nine times out of ten, as it crosses my mind, I say something to this effect. I say, before you go, Remind me, what's your last name? And they say, Lockhart. And I say, where did you get that name? They say, we got it from you. I said, then live like that's true in front of these people. Because how you live in front of all your friends when you go to school and go to parties and do stuff is going to reflect on me and your mother from whom you got that name. One way or another, right? So if we dropped them off at the Shanahan's and y'all didn't know us, and our kids acted like fools, you have, you have one logical conclusion to make from that. One. One logical conclusion to make. Their parents are fools. Or they're not trying very hard. When the Jews and when Christians go out into the world and we say, God is our Father, we've got the law, Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and we act like fools, the world has one conclusion to make about God. He's not worth listening to. He's not worth obeying. They're no different than we are. Maybe worse, they're hypocrites. At least I don't pretend to be like that and then do the other when people aren't looking. 
So how we walk in this world matters. The law matters. It shows us what God wants us to do. Not that we're saved by it. Not that we stand in better or worse position with God because of it. That's Christ's work. But because the world is watching us. Because people are asking, what's different about this group of 65 or 70 people that are gathered on Sunday morning? Why, why should I come with you to church? The Spirit enables, the law matters. Don't forget 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God. This is what it means to love God, that we keep his commandments. And then John adds this brilliant little phrase at the end of verse 3. Anybody know it? His commandments are not burdensome to us. Ultimately, God looks on the heart. One is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. And so ultimately what Paul is encouraging his original readers and us to consider is whether or not our, our hearts have been circumcised, not whether or not we keep the law real well, not whether or not we're Jewish or Gentile, not whether or not we have circumcision or baptism, not whether or not we read the Bible every day or we uh, avoid doing certain things on certain days or we say certain things or don't say other things or we go to church a certain number of times a year or any of those rituals without regeneration or a profession without practice. He says, God looks at your heart. So are you born again? Have you received forgiveness from Jesus Christ? Because that's all that matters. That's the only thing that gives us any standing before God, is Christ's standing before God. And so the, the summary of Romans chapter 2 is not, be a better law keeper. It's certainly not, ignore the law altogether either. But it's love Christ. Love Christ, because he's the only one that can make circumcision of the heart happen. That's what Paul says in Colossians, isn't it? Okay. Let me let us conclude at that. I would hate to see Becca have to run down the hall in the middle of the last song. I'm not saying that that's ever happened. I'm saying I'm trying to avoid, I'm specifically trying to avoid that happening today by ending on time. And Dr. Belcher is not nearly as long-winded as I am in the pulpit, so I want to be careful. Let me pray, and I'll let you all go. And um, if you have children, please make sure that you get them from their Sunday school classrooms uh, as quickly as you can for the sake of those teachers, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for your law as it reminds us of your character and nature and what you would require of us. Lord, it shows us what is your will and what is good and acceptable in your sight. It also reminds us of our gross inability to keep it and the fact that we stand condemned before you on account of it. And it also draws our attention to Christ who did keep it and who has taken all of the curses of it from off of our heads and placed them on his. Help us, Lord, to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the cost that he paid to purchase us from the kingdom of darkness and make us his own. And we pray that you would remind us that ritual is empty without regeneration and profession is meaningless without practice. So help our confessions of faith, which we affirm each Lord's Day here, to be the confession of our life, that there would be no distance between the two. Enable us to do this by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.